Uh, I, um, I wonder, have you ever thought something of these words? Uh, this organisation really needs whipping into shape. Yeah, you've thought something of those words before. You're a part of some system, a business, uh, a school, uh, a local church even. And you've thought something like, whoever is running this show really needs some assistance. Uh, maybe uh, you're not even a part of the organisation, but just a brief look in uh, to the shop window or, or wherever and you think, well, I could do a better job. Oh, I could bring this place into order. And of course, sometimes that's just true, isn't it? Uh, but sometimes that kind of thinking shows a lack of insight into the complexity of leadership uh, or an ignorance of what's involved in the running of an organisation, whatever the organisation happens to be. I remember when I was an electrical apprentice, uh, 18 years old, learning to live out of home for the first time, learning to cook my own meals, uh, though I wasn't really doing that. Uh, my sister was my housemate and she's a great cook. Anyway, I looked at the rather large organisation uh, electrical company that I was a part of, and I thought, well, I could run this, uh, but without really knowing anything at all. A bit like the smallest of children wanting to teach their parents how things uh, should be. The three-year-old only having just learnt to speak, uh, being taught by their parents, then instructing his parents uh, on how things are to go. If the organisation is the universe, have you ever found yourself thinking or telling God that he's got it wrong? As though we might give him some helpful hints on how to whip things into shape. Uh, when asked what he would say if he was confronted by God at the pearly gates of heaven, uh, Stephen Fry replied, I'd say... Bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault, it is not right, it is utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say, said Stephen Fry, I think, back in 2015 when he was interviewed. And you sense the anger in his, in his voice. What do you think you're doing, God? I know better than you. It's actually really easy to look at the world and accuse God of all kinds of things, isn't it? From our context, from our experience, in our ignorance, as though he could use our advice. Now, we've been looking at this great monster of a book that is Job, where a real man really suffers from being the greatest in the East. Now, that is a broad statement, isn't it? To losing everything and gaining those sores from, from head to toe, from being the bloke that absolutely everyone looked to, to being laughed at even by the little kids we read in chapter 19. Now, the book of Job, it's chapters and chapters of poetry where we're not given a paragraph, this is the answer to suffering in this world, but we're engaged emotionally with the difficulty of it. 
Uh, to give a, a short recap of what we've looked at over the last few weeks, we, we briefly looked at uh, Job's so-called friends and zoomed in on that fellow Bildad in chapter 8 with that system of, of thinking good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, karma. Therefore, uh, Job must have done something wrong. He's being punished. God is just. So fess up, Job. You're hiding it. Fess up. And God will restore you. But as readers, we know that Job is innocent in the suffering. And in chapter 9, we saw Job's emphasis on the sovereignty of, of God. If God is in control, he must be unfair. Job doesn't have the backstory that we as readers have, the Lord allowing the existence of evil, the Lord allowing the Satan, the accuser, enough freedom to prove himself wrong. God's people don't love God for what they get but for who he is, for he is worthy of worship. And as the speeches continue, that we get to the third cycle of speeches and the friends, they sort of just peter out. And in chapter 31, Job's speaking finishes with him crying out for the Almighty to answer him. But just as it was back in chapter 9, There's a sense in which what Job desires most, a a hearing before the Almighty Lord, it's also what he fears most. How can anyone come before the Almighty God? Eliphaz mocked Job as though that idea is just plain ridiculous. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer back in chapter 5? And even the fourth friend, the younger guy who pops up when Job finishes speaking and talks for four chapters before before the Lord speaks, he says in chapter 37, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. And it's got to be true, doesn't it? The, The transcendent, almighty God. How can we, how can people stand before him? Yet as we get to chapter 38, God speaks. And it's not as though Job finds God somehow, but the Almighty finds him and speaks to him. You picture a dinner party with English academics drinking tea and discussing. They're the subject of discussion. God. Everyone's sharing what they think. What do you think about God? The most senior person at the table is quiet. So he's addressed directly. What do you think about God? I should think it is a great impertinence were I to express my opinion of God. The one anxiety of my life is to know what is God's opinion of me. Job has been crying out and telling God what he thinks of the situation. Job's opinion... Well, now, amazingly, we have the Almighty Lord speaking directly to Job. Notice, to Job, not to the friends. And interestingly, it's the Lord speaking. You notice that in verse 1 of chapter 8, Lord with capital letters, Yahweh. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping, relational God, who in the Bible storyline will reveal himself to the Israelites, those slaves in Egypt, and rescue them from slavery. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
a, a rescue in Egypt that will ultimately be fulfilled in the rescue we know in the Lord Jesus. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm we read, the, the storm that's described by that fourth friend, Elihu, in the, the couple of chapters before, the, the storm showing the mighty power of God and the storm that's really become Job's life. And the Lord says, verse 2 and 3, chapter 38, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Verse 3, brace yourself like a man. Man up, I'll question you and you shall answer me. And you notice that Job's not convicted of the secret sins the so-called friends are saying he's guilty of, but guilty of speaking with words without knowledge, out of his ignorance. Keeping in mind when we get to the end of the book, the Lord says, Job spoke rightly about me. And we'll think about that some more next week. But he certainly says some things that are wrong. Job wanted to question God, but now God questions Job. And with that long series of of questions that Megan read so well for us, the Lord begins with the fundamental structure of the universe. You notice this in verse 4 to 7? I'll read again. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Job, where were you? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? It's poetry, isn't it? Surely you know who stretched out a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And the rhetorical impact is so clear, isn't it? No, I wasn't there. No, I don't know. Job must say, if he can speak. The Lord describes creation as this joyous thing, doesn't he? The angels or sons of God, you see in your footnote, shouting for joy. Reminding us of the backstory in chapter 1 and 2. There, there is this otherworldly reality, but a lovely picture of God's creation. But what of this problem of evil? As Job suffers so profoundly, we'll see verse 8 to 11, evil, it's there, but limited in Bible imagery, you know the sea is symbolic of evil. Chaos, disorder, death. Verse 8, who shut up the sea behind doors when it, when it burst forth from the womb? And verse 11, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Evil, yes, it's there. But with strict limits. The imagery of the, the wild ocean crashing against the cliffs and going no further is helpful, isn't it? And we have the backstory that the Lord allowing the Satan, the Lord allowing evil, but with strict limits. And verses 12 to 15, the imagery sort of changes again. We have the Lord giving orders to the morning, showing dawn its place. It's time to, to get on with a new day. Have you given these kinds of orders, Job? And we read verse 13, that is, the morning might take the earth by the edges, 
and shake the wicked off it. It's not an argument for a flat earther. Uh, It's poetry. Uh, It's in the dark that the wicked like to do their thing, isn't it? In secrecy, under the cover of night, the adulteress goes at night. But as the sun rises, the earth is pictured as like a, a picnic blanket or a tablecloth, where instead of crumbs being shaken off, it's, it's the wicked being shaken off as the sun rises. And in verse 15, it's, it's the wicked that are denied their light, their version of light, darkness. In Job 24, we read that midnight is their dawn and their upraised arm is broken. The arm that is coming down to strike and destroy is itself broken. So we have this this imagery of evil being restricted with limits set, a wild, chaotic ocean. And this might remind you of Revelation 21 verse 1, that final day when the wickedness will be no more, where there will be no more sea, we read. And not literally the ocean but symbolic of evil, the sea, no more wickedness, yours and mine, as well as the devil and his schemes. And as the Lord continues to to question Job over and over and over, the, the answer remains, I wasn't there, I don't know. But you do. In verse 16 to 18, the place of the dead is on view, the gates of death, verse 17, the gates of the deepest darkness. In verses 19 to 21, it's the Lord in control of light and darkness. And some sarcasm in verse 21, you know for you were born then, Joby, hey? And the number of your days are great. Sometimes in our pop culture, we watch these movies, don't we, where the devil is in control of death. But here, he limits, he's limited and can only do what the Lord allows. From verses 22 to 38, we're pointed to the sky and how it speaks of creation order, snow and and hail and, and rain, the constellations. I love verse 35 of 38. Do you send the lightning bolts on their way, Job? Do they report to you, here we are, where do you want us to go today? No. No, Job must say, but you do. And we notice at the end of chapter 38, all the way through to 39, there's a, there's a shift to the animals and the, the birds. And it's really the, the wild end of animal life. Not, not our domesticated animals, but the out-of-control ones. Out of our control, anyway. Do you hunt the prey of the lioness? Do you know where the mountain goat gives birth? Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Do you give the horse its strength? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? Does the eagle soar at your command? No. No, Job must say, but you. And this is the first of two speeches from the Lord. And hopefully we can take a look at the next one as we finish Job next week. But you just see the the beginning of chapter 40. We read, The Lord said to Job, 
Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice. But I will say no more. Some commentator says, although Job still focuses on himself, he's beginning to bow before the greatness of God. It will not be until the second speech that that he explicitly makes a confession about God. Still, it's a start. Derek Kidner says, God's speech cuts us down to size, treating us not as philosophers but as children, limited in mind, puny in body, whose first and fundamental grasp of truth must be the difference between our place and God's and to accept it. At the end of Job chapter 28, which is a wisdom interlude in the book, it reads, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil, that is understanding. Now, it's easy to cry out to God, you've got it wrong. This organisation needs whipping into shape. I won't worship you because you're not doing it my way. From my experience, my context and my agenda. And if you've suffered profoundly and if you're suffering profoundly, it makes it so much more difficult, doesn't it? But I guess the force of this passage for us, it's the same as it was for Job, that we might shut up and look at him. And as we do struggle with the reality of evil and suffering, we look to Jesus who did enter history, don't we? And who did tell the wild and chaotic wind and waves to be still, and they were. Who told the demons to to get out, and they did. We look to Jesus who rode the unbroken wild donkey into Jerusalem and who died in our place. Now, there's some loose ends to tie up, uh, but we're not at the end of Job yet. This afternoon, I just want to finish with this, um, and I find this quite hard to say, uh, as it may be hard to hear. But perhaps you're someone who's been busy telling God how it should be. Uh, You may not have uh, been doing that with words, but by withdrawing from him and even withdrawing from his people. Uh, From your perspective, it is not fair. And you may even be bitter and struggling. What about this? Just pausing? Your opinion of God, sure. But what about his opinion of you? I think they're really wise words from a quiet English academic at a tea party. I should think it a great impertinence were I to express my opinion about God.
the one anxiety of my life is to know what is God's opinion of me. Can you answer that question before the Almighty? I hope that you can. How about we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the wonderful picture of your wisdom and strength and might, your transcendence that we have in Job. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't miss the grace that this almighty God who does not have to answer to us or to Job, that you addressed him and spoke to him. Uh, And Lord, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We thank you that you speak to us through the Lord Jesus as we see him in the scriptures, as we see him doing things that Job could not, doing things that only the almighty God could do. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for seeking to uh, tell you what to do, to tell you how life should be. And Lord, we're conscious that even in profound suffering you care, that Jesus weeps with the reality of death. But Lord, even in all of the difficulty, we pray that you would give us the grace that we might rest in him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the great concern for our lives might not be what we think of you, that we might not tantrum like a small child seeking to boss a parent around, but that we would care profoundly of what your opinion of us is. And Father, this afternoon as we bring our sinfulness to you, we thank you that in Jesus we know what your opinion of us is. That you sent your son to die in our place, that you loved us that much. And that in him now, forgiven, you see him and not us. And that we are secure for eternity. But as we live with the reality of this life, evil that is limited but still around, protect us and provide for us, we pray. And we ask, Lord, too, that there would be many, many more bowing the knee to you, that you would help us proclaim the message of Jesus as we live for you in this tricky world. And we pray these things uh, by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.